Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Teacher Takeaway podcast. We are up to episode 25, interview with a new grad. Our inquiry question today is, how can we best support new graduates in their first year of teaching? And I am joined by the wonderful James Gray. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us again. The magnanimous Alice Vigors. Hello, everyone. Nice to have you back. Unfortunately, Aaron is off again this week. We miss you, Aaron. We look forward to you rejoining us. But standing in his place is our guest today, Graham, who is joining us. Hello, Graham. Hi, Beck. How are you? And James, uh, lovely to uh, meet you. And Alice, magnanimous. There's a word that does not get out enough. Am I right? Definitely. Thanks for joining us, Graham. (laughs) Okay, so I met Graham a few years back and this is his first year of teaching and we are really keen to learn about what it's like through the eyes of a brand new graduate, especially with the complexities that are occurring currently in teaching. So I'm going to throw to James so we can dig deep into who is Graham and what is going on. Graham, first question I guess I'd like to know is what, what were you doing before teaching and what made you want to study teaching? There are two questions there. What I was doing immediately before teaching James was I was an account executive in a digital agency. My background is graphic design. I've got a 30-year career as a graphic designer behind me. What made me want to change is uh, a much, much longer question, but the, the, the 100-word answer would be uh, the design industry is tenuous to stay permanently employed in. And so I was going from contract to contract and um, that got really long in the tooth. The novelty wore off after about 30 years and a number of... Just uh, after 30. After 30? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's COVID. We argued much too much. It's bad on the marriage. It's bad on, bad on the mortgage. And, uh, you know, it took a long pivot. I actually made a video about it. It goes for about eight minutes. But I had to rethink the way I thought about education. And uh, I was brought up in an era that taught you that you get educated you become a teacher when you can't get a real job you know if you can do something you do it if you can't then you teach it and uh you know my my dad particularly looked down his nose a long way at education and so i had to reverse engineer that construct in my head that took a long long time but then people have been saying you know graham you you really love the sound of your own voice you like talking to people (laughs) you uh yeah beck knows yes she's nodding we're recording the video but she's nodding and um (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're patient. You like to explain things to people. Why don't you get into education? And the back of my head was just supposed to go, no, only losers become teachers. But then oh, my kids, <laughs> my, my kids, and I'm not, I'm sure my dad wasn't the only person who's ever, you know, thought like this. It's, it's part of the great Australian psyche is we want our kids to be educated, but we're really confident to, you know, talk badly about teachers behind their back. And, and I'd love to get into that. But uh, then my kids went to school and I'm looking at the fact that their teachers are with them, you know, six hours a day and there's 30 kids in a room and that all seems to go well. And they look, you know, tired, but happy at the end of the day. And I'm like, wow, that person's a total boss. I couldn't do that. And slowly my worldview changed and I came to appreciate that education was actually a really serious craft. And uh, eventually I thought, well, maybe all the people telling me I should get into education aren't all wrong. The the people, sorry, Graham, on that point, the people who were telling you to get into education, did any of them work in education or did they just believe you were a good fit to educate others? That's a great question. There's three key people I can think of there, James. The first person who said to me, and I think you'd make a great teacher, was my mum. And I was 19 at the time. And I was of an age where I wasn't really listening to anything my mum had to say. 
Um, but it, it wasn't lost on me when in my 40s, because I, I didn't actually enroll in my education degree until I was 49, right? And I, I, somewhere in that degree, I remembered, oh, my mom said this. And so that's a very interesting thing for me to reflect on now. The other person who was saying it to me for eight years was my wife. Now, she retrained out of corporate finance. She was with the Commonwealth Bank for 10 years. She got retrenched when they bought State Bank. Then we had kids. And then she wanted a career to get into that was going to be family friendly. And she chose education, got into primary. And she'd been in that for a few years. And she's like, she was the big, big, big noise going, you should do this. And the other guy was um, a a pastor that I know. And he is a professional musician, plays trumpet. He toured with Midnight Oil and he was a music teacher. And he said, you'd be a great teacher. And so there, there are people, different people, but there are people who I respected. Did, did you I can give there? No, that's that's good, Graham. When you were thinking about that and you're thinking of those different voices from who you shared, mm. did you did you know anyone within teaching primary or high school beforehand? First hand experiences? Yeah, look, that's a good question. I knew people and I knew them socially. So I had a couple of friends. Uh one was a primary school teacher. I, I wouldn't say I knew many people, and they were not big influences on me to change my thinking so in terms of whether I I mean I knew my kids teachers a little bit one of them I knew a little bit socially but no actually they weren't people who I would say had a huge influence on me thinking about getting into teaching because it just felt so alien and so hard to get into by the time I was aware that it actually was a profession and that it really you know there was a bar there were things you had to do to get into it um the people who are really motivating me were actually was predominantly my wife and one or two other friends but they actually weren't teachers until I started the program and then I started to network and I met people like Beck um, and then that all that all sort of snowballed and and just going back to those initial stages were you hearing anything in the media about teacher shortages at this point and that scholarships available and that there were availabilities and that was attracting you to it Mm. or was it just based upon that initial thoughts that you shared with us? I had two distinct stages of trying to get into into education. And the first one was a long time ago and there was a scholarship. And I was thinking about becoming an English teacher. And I went out to the Department of Education, which I think was, I want to say Blacktown. It was way in the middle of somewhere. Yeah, they have an office there. Okay. And I applied for that scholarship. And that was an in-person interview. The fact that I got that far was kind of amazing and I didn't get that scholarship and then I went sort of back into the wilderness as it was the second time around I was very intentional because there was I think a stem scholarship and I applied for that uh, and I wasn't successful initially and then in I think my third year of my hang on I took six years because I did a part-time and I did it in in conjunction with a master's degree but we could go down that rabbit hole later and uh (laughs) Uh, the second last year of my actual study, I applied for the Teach Maths Now scholarship and I was extremely keen to get that. And I was very fortunate that I actually was successful in applying for it. But I was always interested in scholarships um, in terms of trying to get in, partly because it was going to make things financially easier and partly because I was after the mother load, which is permanency, because there are so many teachers that I know who really uh, who are in the sector, they're great professionals, they're really great. And I've worked for some of them um, on PRAC and in the real world, and they are casuals and they go from year to year, contract to contract, and it's very stressful for them. In terms of the teacher shortage, I heard a little bit about it, 
But I'd say it's really in the last probably year and a half of my degree, I became very aware um, because my lecturers started to talk about it. And then you start to become more aware because you're, you're you now listen. part of, well, you're listening, you're transitioning from I was a student and I'm becoming a teacher. I think something existentially pivots inside you. And, you know, your lens shifts around 90 degrees. And all of a sudden, you're hearing all these messages that just weren't going to fit in your ear because you weren't oriented to listen. That's a great metaphor. I should be a creative teacher. <laughs> and so, but yeah, certainly, um, every, oh, and last year I was doing practice teaching because, not practice teaching, casual teaching, because in your last year you get accreditation, you can go and do casual. And everywhere I went, I'd meet uh, heads of department, deputy principals and they say they say things to me like we can't get nearly as many casuals as we need and these are heads and deputies at large urban schools in sydney and i'm thinking wow if that's their reality and they were baleful they just they were desperate you know um if that's the reality in sydney what's it like in the bush and mm-hmm. so yeah I, i'm aware of it now i'm very very aware of it um but i would say my awareness really picked up oh good two and a half years ago no worries. So re- recapping, Graham, obviously you're in that prior workforce and you were just going in the trenches, changes. You identified you needed change. You, you were hearing um, from your wife and different people around you for that change. You were then mm. able to identify some scholarships and you were successful mm. with the maths one. You mm. started university. I know Alice has a question around that. Mm. Oh, actually, let me just correct you before we go. I didn't get my scholarship immediately. I started out dry. So my first four or five years of study uh, were completely personally funded. Right. The scholarship, I didn't, I didn't get until my second last year, but it didn't kick in until my last year. So the last year of my study was paid for. So when um, you... Sorry, The Graham, first five years were not. When you started university, did you know you wanted to be a high school maths teacher? Were you studying that as your specialist oh, subject? Okay, so it gets even weirder. So my degree is a <laughs> Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Education, but it's primary and secondary. Right. It's a very interesting beast. So my first two pracs were in primary contexts, but I was studying a uh, stage six math curriculum. Look, so I can teach K to 12. Um, I remember my first prac, I just finished doing uh, an exam on calculus. And uh, then the next week I was on a placement in a uh, kindergarten room, pushing pink strollers around the room. And I remember my <laughs> teacher saying, I bet you didn't expect to do that when you woke up this morning, Mr. Reza. I'm like, uh, no, miss, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone contrast. expect that? Yeah, Versatility, so my, we love it. <laughs> oh, she just thought that was hysterical because I'm like, I'm going to be a math teacher. And she's like, really? Let's see, push that stroller. So um, <laughs> I, I could have gone either way. I was, you know, my wife is like, well, do primary because they, they want more men in primary, don't have enough men, and uh, you'll just sort of broaden your options. I was always leaning toward high school, James. And in the event, once I got the uh, Teach Paths Now scholarship, that really just, you know, solved that question for me. No worries. Alice, I know you had a question about um, Graham's university experience. Yeah, I was just wondering um, what parts of your teacher training did you feel Mm. really helped you as you come out into the classroom? Yeah, I think I think that's always the, the question, you know, um, and the question you're not asking is how well did your uni prepare you or not prepare you? <laughs> and, I, and I've got friends who will say to me, my uni really didn't prepare me very well for the degree. And, and I don't think that's an uncommon statement. 
My uni, I'd say, prepared me really well. I think they punched uh, well above their weight. And um, But the parts that I really liked, look, there's a few things. The practicum supervisors, particularly in my, my second and third practice, Golly, they're amazing, really insightful people. And they'd had a lot of professional experience as teachers, heads of department, um, and then academics. And then the people who would call you up while you're on prac, one of those people used to be a principal. So you're getting former principals calling you and, you know, being a mentor while you're, you know, trying to not kick over the furniture. And they would just be super gracious. So I think the quality of people who this university was able to deploy uh, particularly across their practicum students, was was pretty great. Um, the theoretical stuff was helpful as well, but I think probably the practicums uh, was was the biggest value add. Mm. And I, I like most people would say that, yeah. Yeah. Well, you learn. <laughs> so you learn. You learn in prac what you, man. You learn. You, you learn what it is that you don't know. You don't know, and it's <laughs> super. You can't. You can't learn that in a in a university classroom. You actually have to go out there. And things like, you know, where's the toilet? And no one tells you, go to the toilet every single break. But they should tell you, right? They should, it should be in the you. orientation pack. Yeah, <laughs> I need to go to the toilet. You don't have time for that. But, I, yeah, but, but you just don't. I'm like, Other professions okay. just don't understand that concept, do they? Oh, you could just go <laughs> ahead and get a latte right now. No, not when you're teaching. That's yeah. right. Graham, can I ask a question? At your, because knowing that you are K-12 trained, specifically mm. when you're doing your primary part, did you do subjects that taught you about the science of reading and how to effectively teach reading? Yes, I did. Uh, yes, yes, yes. We did a couple of subjects. Um, well, I'm throwing my mind back now, but we talked about phonics. We talked about whole word. We talked about, you know, these ideas of, you know, it's sort of a balanced view and there's a lot of heat in that debate still. It, it's, it tends to sort of um, gravitate toward this binary, and which I just, I find annoying. But yeah, they did. Um, and then uh, certainly in my second prac, which was a second, a year two class, we spent a lot of time reading and in literacy groups every week. And, you know, there's like four stations and I was, you know, I'd have to manage those stations. Um, that was explicit. Oh, I remember coming up with limericks every day. I should see if I can uh, look one up on Twitter while we're here. But, you know, like <laughs> rhyming things like, um, you know, the 4A finished, the fabulous 50-year-old collapsed face down on the classroom. Finally, he foofed. You know, that was my last <laughs> day of the prac or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the teacher loved it. The kids are like, how do you spell foof? I'm like, it doesn't matter. Just spell it. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean, sir? No, it doesn't mean anything. It's, what do you think? Just go with me. <laughs> uh, I think most teachers could relate to feeling poofed by the end of it. So. <laughs> oh, I was done. I was just done. Like, and we'd always come in in the morning and our question after day three was, how much sleep did you get last night? I got six hours. Oh, I got four and a half. I hate you. Because, <laughs> you know, we'd all get a year two teacher and you're just coming with bags under your eyes every morning. How much sleep did you get? Classic. So that kind of segues quite nicely into our next question, though, I suppose, is what do you feel like you were unprepared for? And I suppose, you know, you you said, you know, you don't know what you don't know. What are those mm. things now that you've been, you know, we're almost at the end of term three. Mm. What do you feel like you were underprepared for? Look, it's a few things, Beck. I mean, one of the things uh, that, and it's common in every job I've ever done, is you get to the school and there are systems, there's mm -hmm. how do you use the photocopier? Who do you ask for a photocopier code? What happens if you run out of budget on the photocopier code? 
Where's my key? Which doors does it open? Which doors does it not open? If a kid needs to go to the toilet, do I give them an orange slip or a blue slip? What's the blue slip for? What's the process for in their out of uniform? What's the escalatory procedure for getting from blue slip to a yellow slip to an orange slip to a red contract? And who does that? What's an N award? No one told me that at uni. Um, like so many. So our primary, our primary people listening. That's a secondary thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a secondary thing. But but even the thing about like bell times. Oh my days! I got there and there were three different spreadsheets for the bell times. The pre-COVID um, bell time, the COVID COVID, oh. the post ISO 2.0 mark 369.11 intermediary learn from home hashtag YOLO COVID bell time. Oh, the one we're using now. And I'm like, what is the source of truth? And no one knew. I'm like, how do you all know where to be? Oh, my gosh. You, I think you've um, labelled it correctly, though. It is You've come in in a post-apocalyptic, you know, post-COVID world where mental. things aren't quite normal. <laughs> well, I've said to people who've been teaching for 20, 30 years, this is really hard. And they're like, no, really, this is really hard. Is this, I'm like, it's yeah. just my first year. And they're like, it is your first year, but it's also um, trigger warning. We just chucked a pandemic on top of it. It's unprecedented. <laughs> I feel like we've heard yeah. that word before. Yeah, um, but so it's, that was it's like really not, true. Get, it's get, mental and no two terms mate. my last prac the first six weeks of it were delivered on zoom and you'd have and it was secondary but mostly junior secondary you'd have all these kids in the room and for security reasons their cameras went on and their microphones went on and they might or might not have been using the chat and so you're talking to a room for 15 20 minutes oh my gosh you've got to have some pretty strong you know self-confidence to be able to do that can I ask you a, a question, Graham? And it's another hot topic at the moment in the teaching mm. world, which is workload. You know, mm. you, you've come in mid-career, had a change, a very successful mm. career beforehand in accounting, and now mm. you're in your first I year was teaching. Designed. The other guy was oh, designed. But thank you for that. That's all right. <laughs> Talk to me about workload. What's the differences between, you know, the jobs? Obviously, it's going to differ based upon your roles, but mm. what are the main differences you notice? Sure. Look, I think, um, and I'll just add a little bit more to that. So because I've, I've had a couple of different careers already, and as a younger person, um, I went into jobs just intent on changing the system. I was, you know, Don Quixote tilting at every window, window, you know, windmill I could see. And I learned the hard way that actually you'll break before the windmill does. And I've punched a hole in the wall a couple of times and gone through it and, and kind of really damaged my health. And so at the tender age of 54... <laughs> I now know better than to just run after everything that looks like a challenge to solve. And I realized, you know, my biggest challenge to solve is I need to be healthy. I need to have some pretty good sleep hygiene. I need to not torch my marriage if at all possible. And everything else comes in a distant second. But that's a perspective that you only get, you know, with a lot of years under the belt and you get it wrong a few times, right? So I like to think I went in there with a reasonably mature approach to I'm going to have a work-life balance because I've, I've known that I've had, I've had periods of my life when I thought I was getting that right and then I'm like, oh, I really was not getting it right. That having been said, um, you get there and look, you want to make sure that you're across your syllabus reasonably well before you start teaching because if you don't, it's going to throw you to the ground. Um, it would be bad if you didn't have some idea of what you were doing there. In term, I think the biggest shock for me, though, was um, not just writing exams, but little things like marking exams. You don't really realise the first, until you've done that two or three times, just how unbelievably time-consuming that is. And I'm watching my speed come down 
but it's a lot. And it's, I think I would say the biggest, the shock to me was actually teaching is the smallest part of the job. I didn't, I don't think I really expected that. It's the lesson planning beforehand, which I'm sure will get easier and it'll get faster, but it's not like I'm inventing the wheel every time, but I'm inventing quite a few wheels every week. And it's the fact that you've got to do discipline chase up and you've got to be logging incidents and you're like, okay, where is that kid that should be on detention? It's like, oh, now I've got four kids. That means I don't have a recess. That means I've got to get someone else to go to the staff room and get my gear for the next lesson. It's the constant running. And yeah. you, you know, you hit 3.30 and you get home at 4.30 and you just want to go straight to bed. And I frequently do. And I might wake up at eight o'clock, nine o'clock, have some food, go straight back to bed. So it's, it's partly workload and it's also, it's just so innovating. It's rewarding. I'm very pleased with my career change choice. I have no regrets there, but by crikey, does it wear you out? And you just run. There's yeah. no oxygen in the day. You run. How, so I think it, that's something. Sorry, Graham. I, it, I'm just really intrigued because it's providing a really good insight. Mm. You know, in, in your first year at the moment, you know, 27 weeks into the job, how... Mm many days in those 27 weeks have you actually had the opportunity to have a full 30 minute break or do you make time is that something you, you no know, no something i understand sharing? the question and i don't like the answer uh a full continuous 30 minute break yeah. i oh boy how much trouble am i going to get in here i'm not sure i have one yeah i think that's I a fair answer because like we, so our lunchtime is 30 minutes, but you know, you might not get to the staff room for three to four minutes after the bell and you're going to have to leave two to three minutes before the bell. And that's if you have no duty. And there are plenty of, there's two or three days in the week where I actually theoretically have the whole 30 minutes, right? Um, so that's meeting legislative, you know, legislative requirement and that they're ticking the box there. Um, but do I actually get it actually for real in the real world? Kind of low-key not. And that's just the perfect scenario. If something goes pear-shaped or you've got to pick up a duty for someone else or, you know, any number of things, or you've got to yeet off and do some photocopying, no, not yeah. really. A 30-minute continuous break, probably not. I'd never thought of no, that like that. I'm just going to go and have a cry for a minute. Yeah. So, no, no, sorry, it's... Beck. <laughs> Because, yeah, that's one of those things, though, to high school, I imagine, significantly harder when you've got all sorts of things like seniors possibly on earlier start times or things like that or, or um, aligning the times that you have for certain subjects would be yeah much harder in secondary. For primary, we've got a bit of wiggle room where, you know, we can all start, break, sort of stop at the same time, uh, depending on the size of your school. I know there are some primary schools that are so large that they have two separate lunch breaks and two separate um, mm. morning tea or afternoon tea breaks because of their size as well. Um, that said I love though, the idea. Sorry, Beck. that said though, my, right. my first and second practice were in um, primary placement and I don't reckon I've seen anybody work harder than a primary teacher because mm. see, at least in high school, we get free periods. Like I might have probably three, I forget how many it is when you start out, you get one more a year, but I think I have maybe four, free periods a week and and the periods at the school i'm out are really long they're 70 75 minutes yeah wow and so that's like that's three hours a week of planning time it might be a little bit more um but like 
you know, when I was there, I'd, I'd see um, my supervisor would get like a planning period. Then she's probably going to have to run off and have meetings with people or catch up and do like team, you know, liaison catch-ups and handovers or maybe God knows, you know, check her email that she hasn't been able to touch for three days. So I wouldn't, man, how, how does that work? Whereas I do feel that if I get a free period, I'm in the staff room, I close the door, um, I can, you know, chug through some stuff. So. Mm. Um, I, I'm just reflecting on the comment you made where you feel like the, the teaching part is the least, whereas mm. I, I'm coming from two decades of, of that change and that growth. And I know when I started teaching, I know I'm an executive mm. now and things are different, mm. but like when I started mm. teaching, that was not the case. It mm. was all teaching all the time in the classroom mm. and it was mm. some prep time and some of that outside time stuff and a lot of the other outside time stuff that you did, like, you know, mm. decorating your classroom or prepping science yeah. experiments and things like that. They were the things that like enhanced the teaching and learning. It wasn't mandatory. Right. It wasn't compliance. It wasn't admin, like that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, which is what I I feel a lot of teachers are bogged down with now, which is the big mm, conversation mm. that's in the air around workload and and sure. all of that mandatory stuff. So I, mm. I I seriously hope that we can shift out of whatever this is that we're currently in and move back to that process where teachers don't say, I feel like teaching is the least amount of things that we're doing because yeah, you're not the only one that's saying that. No, and it's not why people get into teaching. They get into teaching to teach. I mean, what a shocking idea, right? I mean, I had a, I had <laughs> imagine a that. say, imagine that. Imagine I get into plumbing to be an actual plumber. Um, oh. <laughs> I know, it's revelatory. I've broken all kinds of things here. I had a head teacher say to me the other day, you know, Graham, when I started, well, not when I started out, but I can remember I used to have free time. She said, I remember I can actually have a period off and I could actually be bored. I could, I could, I could scroll on my phone. She said, that was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. She, she said it used to happen. Now, I'm not saying we should make staff rooms, you know, um, and it's never going to happen. It's never, ever going to happen that we would get to the place of boredom where people go, oh, my gosh, I have nothing to do. <laughs> but at the moment... I just I just watch everybody at my school run and I you know they're doing good things some of it though is you know I hear the frustration from people who are on higher pay grades than me and I love the fact that I don't quite understand what they're talking about but they're like this is pointless and they use stronger language than that and like this is a metric <laughs> that doesn't actually reflect what's really going on and it's trying to make something sound better than it actually is and that's not in the interest of our kids and I am required to do it. Like that's toxic in any workplace. And I don't think it mm. has any business in education. Uh, James, I think you've got our next question, do you? Oh, I, I think I do have one lined up, Graham. Yeah. I'm keeping you on your toes today. <laughs> <laughs> but but we've, we've been discussing and, you know, sharing and going through your journey thus far. But mm. we, we just, what... You know, we've shared some of the frustrating things as well, but what do you love most about teaching so far when you get the time to teach? <laughs> when I get the time. Uh, that's periods one, two, three, and four. Look, I tell you, <laughs> I, it's, it's always what people say. It's the light bulb moment. Like I was teaching a year seven class last week and we were doing, oh, I think decimals, fractions, something or other. And there was one girl in the front row and I... I swear her jaw dropped three times in the one lesson and because I just unpacked something or someone, some other kid in the room had explained it or I'd whiteboarded it or and she's like, oh, that's how that works, you know. And I'm like, I said to her, you know, you are making my day. Three, three jaw drops in one lesson. I'm like, this is why I'm here. <laughs> so, that was pretty great. That was fantastic. 
I think one of the other things is just, um, I mean, I really like kids. I think if you don't like kids, please, please don't be a teacher. Like it's going to be horrible for everybody. But um, particularly with some of the older students, you can develop some rapport that reflects those good old fashioned values of Australian backhanded compliments and sarcasm, particularly with the senior students. Um, and you, you know, you can become not mates, but you, you know, this it's nice to be a part of the formation and just watching some people's character sort of develop. That's that's a deep privilege. Definitely. Um, and then quite apart from the fact that I actually get to do maths in a classroom, which is just a giggle. I love it. <laughs> and, and talking about the maths point. Um, and talking about a mathematical mindset, what are some of the things that you notice working in maths that uh, students come in? Do you often find that students transitioning from primary to high school or even from, you know, different stages to four, five and six? What mm. are some of the misconceptions students have about maths? Because I know personally working with, you know, students in K to six, they mm. start from this younger age going, I just don't get maths. So I'm not good at maths, which right. then follows through into high school when it's not mm -hmm. about that. It's that they're missing the foundations that they don't understand mm. maths. Yeah. There's so much in that question. And I'm aware that this is a conversation that has a lot of play and it needs all the play. Right. So gosh, where do I start? Okay. I'm not good at maths. I'm like, okay, are you good at cello? Were you naturally born great at cello? Were you born to, were you born a gifted grandmaster of chess? Oh, no, <laughs> sir. How do you think you'd become a great cellist? Uh, I'd play lots of cello. Excellent. Good. Yeah, good. Yeah, nice. <laughs> See where I'm going with this? Because there's this idea that you're good at maths or you're not good at maths. And like, you know, one of my favourite lecturers from uh, uni used to say, most binaries are bullshit. It's not true. It's not true, right? You get good at it by doing lots of it. That's, how, that's literally how that works. There's like, I don't know, one, 2% of the population, it might be more than that, I don't know, who are actually gifted and genius at it. And they go and win Fields medals and God bless them, right? The rest of us have to work hard. In fact, even those guys have to work hard. The second sacred cow I like to demolish as often as I can is I don't care how fast you are. I don't care. I don't think maths is about being fast. At some point, you'll start to encounter problems and it could be in year eight and it could be in third year university where the mathematics is so challenging that you won't be able to solve it quickly. You'll have to sit with it. And it may take you days. It may take you weeks. It takes some people decades. There are some mathematical theorems which we kind of know, but nobody's been able to prove for hundreds of years. So the idea that it's about getting to the answer in a hurry, not true. It's about understanding a process that might actually lead you towards something that could get to the process. My third sacred cow is um, if you just show me the answer and no working, um, I'll be happy. No, no, Mr. Reeves will not be happy. No, he won't. I want to see you working. And if I can't see you write down your working, it's probably because you can't actually say it out loud as an English sentence. You can't actually conceptualize what you're trying to do and explain it, which is why I'm saying to my kids, okay, I want you to explain it. Or if you can't do that, come up on the board and draw it. So, excuse me, I have to get my dog. Just hold that thought. We're going to have to get it back. The things that you oh, can't do as a teacher in a classroom yeah. is just pause. Oh, this is good. That's <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. It's not a gag for radio. Come here. Hurry up, you're being recorded. Max, he's a... Welcome to the Teacher Takeaway podcast. Yeah, <laughs> teacher, welcome, Max. <laughs> 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 On the spot report. Rough. That was spot. Uh, 
chihuahua cross mini fox terrier. Oh, um, beautiful. And I do find that kids come with, um, you know, highly variable levels of um, confidence and also competence in their, you know, their basic numeracy skills. And even by the, you know, year seven, you can see that that's going to set some kids back to at least two years because they're low. Um, and it's, I won't lie, it's worrying to me because I see some kids just not, they don't work at it. They just don't. Yeah. They just go, it's, it's too hard. I'll never get this. And so I have some kids here in year 11 who just can't resolve a basic algebra problem like X divided by three is 15. They wow. don't know what to do. And we do it every week on the board. Um, look, okay, they, they mostly could do that now, but I've, I do that every single lesson because I worked out pretty early on. These guys can't solve a basic algebraic equation. I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but I, we could No, it's so many paths to it. No, there is, there is. And it's just really interesting within the maths area and mm. you obviously working in there. So I was interested in hearing your thoughts and understanding of working with students and sometimes mm. their misconceptions and what your messages are, which you mm. clearly highlighted your three kind of non-negotiables sure. um, when addressing. Um, mm. So obviously you I shared... Had a Go, Alice. Sorry. I had a question. Um in relation to your teacher training in mathematics, mm. do you, what kind of training did your university provide in terms of mathematics? Because I know when I went to university, mm. our mathematics training to be a teacher was to sit and do problems, year 12 maths, like, you know, first year engineering maths type problems. Right. And that was how right. we were trained to be teach mathematics. Oh, yeah. What, no. What look, was your experience? Yeah. Uh, so we did, uh, I think, two or three units of math. Oh, golly. What did we do? At least two units of primary maths. So we talked about the way that, um, you know, K to six kids, well, the, the way we theorize that K to six kids conceptualize maths. So the idea of, um, being facile, you know, count, can you count by fives on your fingers or do you do count on, you know, if you see somebody counting on their fingers, that means they're counting, but they haven't yet learned to be facile. Can you do five and 10? Can you do friends of 10? We, you know, there's a lot of time working through the, the fundamentals of numeracy, things that I'd forgotten that I was ever taught. Uh, I don't know if I ever was learned that at school, but we, we, I, I was encouraged to really break it down into simple, simple, simple stuff. This is how somebody in, in year one or two might think about maths. This is what you should be thinking or observing that kids in years four, five, six might be thinking about maths. And we did a lot of theoretical work around that. We did essays on that. We had to look at case studies of, um, you know, best practice stuff on the ASA website. I think of how numeracy was thought of and practiced and modeled. We had to use, we had to design experiments using um, tangible objects, you know, concrete objects and counting and tens and hundreds, you know, blocks and things like that. So, um, and then later on, because I also did the secondary, so stage, you know, four, five, six mm, maps, yep. then we were exposed to theoretical subjects. We did calculus, we did integration by parts, we did, is the other dog going to come and sit on my lap? We're thinking about it, we're thinking, we're thinking. <laughs> He's not, you know, mate, if you want to be on the podcast, be on the podcast. This is Louis and he's playing hard to get. And then we did my last maths was, uh, yeah, uh, engineering Excel mathematics. And we did iterative, iterative programming and simulations of like, you know, shunting yards at a train station and random generators with, oh, it was intense, right? Um, 
We did linear analysis, you know, so we did a smattering of things. I never got exposed to networks. I have no idea. <laughs> so the first time I get to teach that will be the first time I you learn about it. So as a range of theoretical stuff, we also got to talk about how to design exams and how you might theoretically map that across against the syllabus, how many marks you may or may not get uh, or assign to something. How would you scaffold a question? You know, how can you make it in such a way that someone who's low ability or low numeracy or low confidence or dyscalculia or high anxiety at least might be able to get some run on the board if they tank, you know, stage two of the question, maybe there's four stages. Like, how could you make that possible? So um, it was a lot more diverse than just here's some papers, go study. Um, and I don't think that would have prepared me very well because it's not realistic. You have to be able to get inside the head of the student, I think. And I don't think that would have been sufficient. Oh, it's interesting to, to see how different unis, and, and it's been a while since I've did my undergraduate degree, but um, it's interesting to hear how different unis prepare their students for the teaching of yeah. mathematics. We, we did a lot of whiteboarding as well, like we did blackboard, you know, lectures where this guy... God, love him. This is, okay, this is Louis here. He's a multi-hysterian. He's nine. Um, <laughs> he would do, you know, he'd whiteboard the solutions with a mouse on a computer screen in PowerPoint. It was excruciating. And I wanted to buy him a stylus and send it up to Queensland to the uni and go, please, please use this, please. I'm begging you. It was just, it was awful. <laughs> but, you know, at least he was trying. He was a wonderful lecturer. Gosh, he was funny. Loved it. Alice, I think you've got the next question there as well. I do. Um, you've got lots of, and you've talked a lot about your experience and, and things that you've really enjoyed mm. with your, your training and then in your first year of teaching. I'm just wondering what, what kind of tips or tricks you have for pre-service teachers, either um, starting their training or nearing the end, getting ready to yeah. you know dive wow. into the classroom. There are so many what are you, things. Look, a couple of top tips. Uh, look, I think, um, look, how you get your first gig, um, oh, that's a whole other ball of wax. I'm going to say, look, let's just imagine you've got your first gig. And let's, you know, you might be permanent. You might just be on contract. But let's say you're going to be a year there, for example, right? Um, two or three things. You want to try and be very resilient and um, not take things personally. And I don't just mean with the kids, I mean with the staff. So, you know, in the staff room, you might find one or two people who, you know, quite like, they're very friendly and you feel very safe. And then you might find somebody who's, you know, been there a while and they've seen some things and they've been through some political upheavals and maybe they're a bit crusty and, um, you know, maybe they bark at shadows. Who knows what they do, right? Maybe they're, you know, slobbering out <laughs> one side of their mouth. And, you know, if you get your head bitten off, uh, it might not be about you, but just maybe just, just be very careful and be gentle and be kind to yourself. I found the first two terms really, really, really tough. I mean, and I, have, I really like my head teacher. He's a great guy. There are some awesome professionals in my staff room. I, I'm in admiration, not just of their pedagogical knowledge and their uh, content knowledge, but also the way they organize themselves. They're terrifying. They're ninjas. They're so organized, right? Um, but there's this, this dynamics. There are human dynamics in the room. Um, in the second term, I got COVID. I was off for a week. I then got a flu. I was off for another week. My wife got COVID. Then she got a flu. 
And in the middle of all that, I was also doing my psych degree at another uni that I haven't told you about yet, because that'll be the conversation of yet another podcast. And I was <laughs> writing, an ex- writing an exam for a year 11 standard for 125 year 11 students at the school, all while I had COVID, right? Like no pressure. It was horrible. And then there were some dynamics in the staff room that were making me just a little bit sad. And I just, you know, I had a couple of days there that were not very happy. Um, what I did do is that I had a bit of heart to heart to the head teacher and things got a little bit better. They got a lot better. I had to get it off my chest. Now, you might not be in a position where you're so fortunate that you have, you know, a head teacher who's going to listen to you. I hope you do. But um, if you don't, you need to find somebody who will. Maybe it's a deputy. Not that you should do an end run on your head, but you've got to talk to somebody. Maybe it's a good friend. Maybe it's a counsellor. Maybe it's a mentor from uni. But you've got to have somewhere, you, you've got to make sure you've got a good support network behind you because teaching is hard. And on top of that, it is a job. And particularly if you're a young person, and I'm not, right? I've, I've had some experiences, but there are some things there that rattle me and I'd like to think I'm fairly resilient. If you're a young person, particularly, you might find that just a little bit upsetting. Um, so make sure that someone's got, make sure you've got your back because if you don't have your back, uh and things go sideways it's not going to be very good that'd be my biggest tip and also oh for god's sake you've got to get your sleep don't try and be superman don't try and solve the world don't try and take on 15 extracurricular challenges don't put your hand up for too many committees you know if you have to be on one you have to be on one just get through the first couple of semesters before you start really you know stretching your legs too much I, um, I had a pre-service teacher do a prac at the school that I was at and she ended up getting a contract that next year and she was very clear with that. She said, I'm not doing anything extra other than my teaching. She said, I want to get my teaching done well. She said, when I do that, I will be more than happy to take on extracurriculars and things like that. And it worked perfectly for her. She had solid classroom routines and structures. And then when she went to start taking on those extracurricular activities, she was in the right headspace for it. The right organizational skills had already been developed. You know, she'd already developed some relationships with staff and with students. And I think it was a really good approach. And the, I'm quite proud of the fact that she articulated that to executive from the start. She set a very clear boundary. I'm here to be a quality teacher. And this is what I'm going to do to do that. Um, I some people yeah it was amazing and this is a younger person so you know mm. from uni to sorry from high school to uni to to then working so um that's magnificent I, I can respect that more than someone I well I shouldn't say respect that but I respect that I fear for the person that continually takes on things and doesn't oh. say I need to cut it no. that's enough you know no. the the virtual volunteers if the kids miss out at the end of the day I of a you know choir or a dance or a sport or something i would rather that than another teacher burnout yeah, you know absolutely. that's it's not worth it i've seen absolutely. other teachers in tears and i don't think that's i don't think it should be like that i was on prac seeing other teachers in tears more than once and uh i'm like oh that's not good that's not good no back no. up tangles that's it and and you're right about sleep it's, it's especially linked to mental health and mm. on top of all those other options that graham mentioned around talking to someone uh if you're in the department you have eeps the employee assistant program some yes support, something like program that. of support whatever it is yeah, so yeah. um that's an option for you and there's also lots of other free ones and and like you said 
talking to someone helps. We know this, that we know that the yeah. research and the studies and the psychologists and the psychiatrists and the counselors will all tell us the exact same thing. Talking to someone helps, even if it's not someone you work with or someone that you know, even yeah. if it's a stranger at the end of the each phone line there. Um, as we wrap up for tonight though, Graham, do you have any questions for us? We've got James who's been teaching for seven, eight years now, James. Eight years, yeah. Wow. Years. Oh my gosh, you're closing in on double digits, man. Oh, no, so exciting. <laughs> How long for you, Alice? Uh, 14 years this year. 14. Cool. Oh my god. Wait, are we at the seven year? No, I'm only closing in on 20, not 21. I thought we were split there seven years equally. Almost. No. Almost. We can do Almost. something with it mathematically. <laughs> I'm sure we um, could there. So, I mean, do yeah. you have any questions for us as a uh, new grad? Yeah, look, I, I mean, my question at the moment is, and I'm very much mindful of the uh, graduate who you talk about, who um, just set themselves to get, you know, to become a good teacher. I, I really want to do that. And, and the number that I have in my head is three years. Like, it's not that I wouldn't take anything else on. I'm already on the PBL team at the school. They just put me on that, which, and I'm learning things, you know. Um, but there, I think there comes a point at which you go, no, oh, I can stretch my wings. I can take on something else. Um, and I'm just curious about, you know, James, um, so uh, you hold, I think, an executive position, and Alice, you've probably been through a couple of different positions or transitions. I'd be interested to know um, what gave you the sense of it was time to, you know, move on, not, not move on, but do something else, something bigger, something different. My, I'll address the question, I guess, first, Graham. Mine wasn't necessarily that I thought that my I was confident within my teaching and that I was ready to take something on it was identifying a need and thinking that 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 need uh, needed to be filled and then that led to it so um I, I guess it wasn't that aha moment going wow like I've got a little bit time added because I'm faster with putting my lessons together. I'm faster with providing feedback to students. I'm faster with my assessments, et cetera. It was just, mm. there was a need within a school. I filled that need. And then that led to different things as a, as a byproduct for that. So I guess, okay. yeah, not necessarily that there was a time. It was, I saw a need early on. I worked to address it and, and things eventuated from there. Nice. Alice, in terms help. of, <laughs> um, in terms of um, my journey, I think reflecting back, I spent probably the first couple of years finding my feet mm. and then the the principles and the leadership that I worked with kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, we think you've got the skills for this and we think you're ready to to take on, you know, this particular role within the school, we've got this need mm. and, you know, here's the support we'll provide you to be able to fulfil that as well as, you know, continue to do the great work in, mm. in your classroom. So I've always been quite fortunate that I've had quite supportive leaders around me that are willing to, to help me grow and, mm. and see my capabilities and my passions and, and willing to, kind of help foster that along my journey but definitely the first I want to say two two and a half years mm. I really you know knuckled down and and worked hard to you know perfect my craft mm. for want of a better phrase 
That's a nice way to put it. I mean, the number that's put to me is, you know, people say, like the first year round, I really didn't know what I was doing. The second year, I was pretty sure. And by the third year, I had it nailed. It's like yeah. a couple of people have said roughly those are the numbers. So um, that's where I'm aiming. And, the, yeah. the, and you, I think that's quite realistic. And I think yep. that you're constantly learning, like regardless, you know, when you, you know, you're 12 years, 14, 15 years in, oh, you, you might 100%. have a, a greater understanding, but you're continually learning and refining your practice. And I think yep. that's the important thing from it, because my thought process is explicit and quality teaching is quality teaching. If you have an right. understanding of what that is and then mm. you put that into your practice, obviously mm. experience is going to deepen your understanding on how to change things. But mm. I think within within our teaching and lifelong learners, it's that we continually get feedback from colleagues that we respect upon our teaching. Because I might think, yeah, I've got it my third year in and I never get feedback and I keep doing the same thing year in, year out, year in, right. year out. But is right. that necessarily experience or is that years of doing the exact same thing over and right. over again? Mm. Yeah. I think being reflexive is is super important. I mean, it was reamed into us at uni. You need to be reflect on your practice. You've got to understand your metacognitive process. You've got to be aware. You've got to be aware of whether you actually are aware or not. And then yep. you need to do something with that. Metacognition. I mean, yeah. That's it. The big word. Self-awareness. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing very openly with us tonight. I think there's been some um, really insightful discussion today that we could probably continue down that rabbit hole um, at the time. Um, James, how many takeaways have you got from this episode? Uh, I'm going to stick with two takeaways tonight, Beck. And my first takeaway that I've taken from our conversation tonight is the message out there about teaching, because hearing Graham's initial experience and what helped him shift was, you know, listening to close ones around him, around teaching, but we need to get a better narrative out there of what teaching is like. So so we're attracting the right people for the profession. So that's, that's my first takeaway. And, and my second one is the need for change is being made more prevalent because obviously Graham coming out, he's working in a high school, but the same thing that he's saying that he can't remember the time that he's had a 30 minute lunch break. That's not okay. And that is the same message, not in just Graham's circumstance. It's across, you know, the sector in New South Wales that I can share. And that just reinforces the need to make change now. So they're my two takeaways. How about you, Alice? What are you taking away? Um, I think the conversation today really kind of highlights the need to support our pre-service graduate teachers at all stages, um, or any teacher really, at any stage of their career to help them, you know, perfect their craft and to be reflective on their practice and to have someone, you know, model their practice for them so they can go, oh, yeah, I do that and, you know, have those really rich collegial discussions around what goes on in the classroom and how we engage our students and the impact of that teaching on student learning outcomes I think is really important. And another key takeaway for me was particularly around the initial teacher training, and I know we kind of had talked about it last week on the podcast, around how prepared teachers feel in their first few years of teaching coming out of of university. Um, 
I think, and as we talked last week, I think there's a lot of work that we need to do in that space to make sure that the, that the theoretical side that we're learning in the classrooms at university matches what is actually occurring in the classroom to better support teachers as they come out. Mm. They're my two key takeaways. Excellent. Now, Graham, you don't have to have two. That's just a pattern that James started. <laughs> Do you have any takeaways from today's episode? Look, I, I'm appreciative of the invitation. Of course, Sam, I'm very flattered. Um, I, I will notice that um, I think teachers are taking a, an increasingly strong sense of ownership around the way that their profession is being portrayed in the profession and in the public domain. And it's pleasing to me to see that uh, make an increasing noise in the zeitgeist and, and, you know, politically and on social media. And it's reaching the point, certainly in New South Wales, and I don't know the Queensland context, but in New South Wales, it's reaching the point where that uh, noise is becoming deafeningly unignorable. Um, I think that's a good thing. And I also think it's really sad. I think uh, it, it shouldn't be the case that we should have to run begging, screaming and clamouring uh, after the government of the day, uh, whoever that is, uh, <laughs> to have public education fully funded, right? It just It's just not okay. Um, but I do, on the positive side, as I say, it's pleasing and it warms my heart that teachers are, um, they're almost reached the point where they're not interested in listening to people just, you know, <laughs> gaslight us. They're like, no, no, this is who we are. We're about quality. You can educate yourself and we'll help you be educated, but we're not really here for your ignorance in terms of just, you know, taking low kicks. And I think we're standing up and we're having more pride in the profession and a certain sense of dignitas is evident in that. And I think that's um, absolutely all for the good. How about yourself, I Beck? I've, I've got, well, I've got one takeaway, I suppose, and one idea. Does that a take count as a takeaway? I'm going to count it. So take it <laughs> that um the the fact that you were hearing about teacher shortages and stuff sort of towards that end of your mm -hmm. um degree mm -hmm. um I, I think that indicates the fact that we are screaming loudly from desperate. the rafters Absolutely that, that there have I'm been issues because when i was training not not a word you would hear things mm -hmm. like oh we need some more maths teachers or you know wow. wouldn't hear a word of it or we'd hear things like oh there's going to be the big boomer um retirement yes thing. or go but bush yeah, there's happened. jobs out bush yeah. go bush that's, that's it oh, go bush if you it's wanna. like we need yeah. more teachers yeah just need it in general so the fact that you're hearing mm. it there that's my mm. takeaway that that's being loud and heard and and mm. yes referring again to the the round table um mm. there are people in power sitting there going you don't say, all right, okay, I'm listening. Some aren't, some are. <laughs> mm -hmm. So there could be some battles there, but some are. So we need to mm -hmm. throw our, our conversations and continue that. My idea stems from the fact that you said that you had a principal mentor during your training. Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm curious, before I continue with my idea, was that like just for one subject, for one prac, or was that throughout the entire degree? Uh, it was for one prac placement, a former principal one of my lecturers, right. one of my math lecturers was a former principal as well. And then he went back into academia. So I've had, and I, and I, I was teaching once at a tutoring school and I've actually taught former principals there about how to use Zoom and, you know, Google Sheets and stuff like that. <laughs> but the one I was referring to is a former principal and she was my, you know, phone call once a week, check-in buddy. She was not 
uh, university staff, but she was like, I, I don't know whether she was paid or not, to be honest, Beck. But she um, was my designated contact point. Um, and I caught up with her every week on the phone for maybe 20, 30 minutes um, during my kindy, my first uh, placement. You see, I love the idea of that. Not necessarily a principal, but I love the idea of having an allocated mentor that would probably see you throughout your degree. Right. When you go through the learning pit of different subjects or when you've done mm. a semester of uh, theory and then you suddenly have a semester of prac and that's a completely different world to be in. I love mm. the idea that mm. we would have a contact person because I don't know a single teacher that takes on a prac student for the money, for whatever couple of hundred dollars oh, it is. No, for the no, no one cares you? about that. No. And I am very sure that I would raise my hand for it now. If I had someone as my designated, I'm going to talk to you once a fortnight, see how you're going with your studies, because I've got my yeah. own mentor just because he's my mentor. He was a leader for me years back and we've just kept sure. that relationship. I wonder how much that would support people even continuing when they start teaching, whether it's casual, temp, full-time, rural, remote, whatever it is. Can you imagine how starting your degree with someone who's got a chunk of experience, even mm -hmm. if it's only someone who's been teaching for five years, I'm taking mm -hmm. that idea away and I'm going to throw it at someone. I don't know who I'm going to throw it at, but I'm going to throw that idea out there somewhere. That, that throw it at Jason great... Clare. <laughs> I will. I will be doing that. <laughs> uh, next time I see him face to face, I'm going to go, I've got an idea and I'm just going to bail him up idea. in the corner until he listens to me. Well, let's keep throwing these ideas to the people that are going to listen and make the change. So thank you everyone for joining us for episode 25 as we had an interview with a new grad. Thank you, Graham. And hopefully we've targeted our IQ question, our IQ question, our inquiry question. Oh my gosh, it's late in the evening, guys. How can we best support new graduates in their first year of teaching? If you have any suggestions for future episodes, please hit us up on our socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Any feedback greatly appreciated. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks, everyone. Bye.